Welcome everybody to episode 89 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. My guest today is a legendary photographer. He has photographed the likes of Deep Purple, Freddie Mercury, and perhaps most famously Megadeth and Metallica. He has a book, which is a great collection of his photographs out now, Metallica, the club days, 1982 to 1984. Please welcome to Metallica's Bill Hale. Bill, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, you know, let's just jump right into it. Let's let's travel back in time a little bit. How did you get into photography? Where did that uh, start for you? Yeah, my dad was an amateur photographer, and it was just something that came natural. I, I Since eight or nine, I had a camera in my hand, and every time we traveled someplace, even though I didn't know a lot about shutter speeds or f-stops, you know, I gradually got there. And say, senior in high school, I needed uh, an elective, and I said, well, let's, let's do photography. Right. And it was crazy because I was 1979 and everything started happening right around there. Right. Yeah. So before we, you know, come together and merge the two worlds, what was your introduction to music and specifically metal and rock? Well, at first, my dad was a big uh, music fan, a big jazz fan. It wasn't the typical stuff. It was like that West Coast cool stuff. And the metal, it just... Um, my best friend, Buddy John Stranansky, who actually wrote the magazine with me, Metal Rendezvous with me, he was a, he came from Europe. He, he, uh, I knew all the, like, Deep Purple from the 60s and Stas Quo, but he knew all the updated versions. And so we caught up together, and he introduced me to Scorpions, like, in 77, and ACDC nice. in 78. He was ahead of the curve and all that stuff. So we kind of, like, you know, it was a good combination between us. Right, right. And then... You mentioned the magazine Metal Rendezvous. What what was sort of the thought process behind creating that? And, and tell us the origin story of that. Yeah, well, as a kid, well, you know, being a high school kid and stuff, and Hip Parader and Circus and Runs, it didn't do the bands we liked. And we were already into Sounds Magazine and Melody Maker. So we knew all these bands like Iron Maiden and, uh, Diamond Head, and we didn't get anything from the mainstream media, so we decided to make a magazine. Oddly enough, Quintana had one just about the same time. Bob Nalbadian came out a little bit later, and the first person to have a fanzine on our group was Brian Slagle, who had the new Heavy Metal Review, and he had that just a little bit before ours. So we all had fanzines, and of course, Lars being Lars knew all of us before that because he had right. he was a metal fan. And so it was how we all came together. It was, you know, Lars kind of like, oh, you know, this guy, you know, this guy. And I knew <laughs> I, I knew Quintana from the Bay Area already. And he was crazy. Yeah. And so but that, that was, because we didn't get the press of the bands we wanted. So we might as well do it ourselves. You know, right. and uh, my magazine you know, was a fanzine at first. And then at the end of the 80s, we're 100,000 issues worldwide. I mean, wow. I'm on stage with White Snake or Deeper, any band I wanted to do, you know, Game More, you know, I just had to call up and there I am. So That's awesome. Yeah. So it took uh, touch upon a couple things that you said. Um, you know, you talked about that group, Brian Slagel and Bob Nobandian, and who are both both uh, past guests on Metallicass. Um, and sort of how did you run into those guys and – you know, I know you mentioned like Lars just kind of introducing people left and right and networking and doing his thing. But what, what's your specific story of uh, getting together with, with this group? Yeah, Nelbadian was, um, I think, like 82-ish. And we're, you know, the, uh, John did the whole pen pal thing, or one of our friends did. And then we traded stories. Of course, uh, Bob and Patrick Scott did the first story Metallica. And Bob had his fanzine, and we traded info and stuff. And Slagle, because all of a sudden he was doing, you know, getting ready for the first Metal Blade record. And then he needed stuff, too. So through John Sutherland, who was his uh, press guy, we got together and stuff. And it's, you know, I've known Slagle since the beginning, you know. And yeah. so thing with some of those people like that, it's just, we're all, because we, we all had the same love for the new British wave of heavy metal. We all love Saxon and Maiden and, Ethel the Frog or whatever, right? right. And, you know, Fred Stranowski still has a uh, 45 collection, which is rare from hell. And, you know, we just had that because the that, 
that music called to us. It was like, wow, something we can own. And it wasn't, you know, and then I'll go get to the Metallica connection because they had the formula. The, Lars had that British sensibility and, and James had the Engl the American singing attitude kind of thing. And right. all the bands like Maiden or Leopard couldn't get that. And then Lars just stumbled upon it. <laughs> <laughs> and so to bands like Diamond Head, Iron Maiden, um, all that new wave of British heavy metal, when did you first kind of discover those bands? And was it just through, you know, the tape trading, hanging out with those guys and just kind of saying, hey, have you checked out this band? Have you checked out this band? Well, it first came from Sounds. Right. We would, we would uh, you know, go record collecting and there's Sounds Magazine and Melody Maker and then me. But Sounds really had the metal attitude and that was where the most stuff came from. I remember John ordering the first Diamond Head album from Diamond Head and all it was was a, a white sleeve, and they autographed it. You know, that's yeah. like. And then he also got the Iron Maiden Soundhouse tapes that way too, and you know, because he's a big collector, and and he loved all that stuff. You know, I got what I wanted. He got. I mean, he had like the first Tigers of Pantang uh, single and stuff. But we all loved that British thing. It was just had spoke to us. Right. Yeah. And do you remember the first time you met Lars Ulrich? Yeah, it was the first time they played uh, the Sam so it's a Stone. Uh, it was funny because uh, John Stransky had ordered an Iron Maiden Killers jacket when the album first came out because it was on right. in sound someplace. And so he's at a Jewish Priest show in Oakland. And uh, so he's doing his thing. And then the next day he gets a phone call from Lars because Lars talked to Bill Burkhardt here on the Record Exchange, which is the other record store besides the vault. And he goes, I saw this dude, you tall blonde guy, and he was like, had an Iron Maiden jacket. And, you know, that's, you know, that's John Sudansky. And they hooked up that way. And so we knew Lars before Metallica. And actually, we heard, like, hit the lights. He would, like, he calls up on Tuesday. That was my office day with John. And he's like, hey, listen to this song. Put the phone down. And you're, <laughs> <laughs> you know, either David break a string or Lars would symbol will fall off. But that's how we <laughs> yeah. knew him. And so when we first got together, it was like, uh, you know, Lars is Lars. James kind of quiet. Uh, Dave was saying I hit it off off the bat. And, and Ron, I love Ron. He was a normal guy, the nice guy. Yeah. But we did three shows together off the bat. You know, and more and more, Dave and I got to be really close friends. And uh, Lars and Stred, because they're both European, were you know had a big camaraderie. I remember when. Uh, Cliff got in the band. They needed money. <laughs> and so John and Lars would, John would buy Lars's really rare collection. They would argue for hours about how much this was worth. And I said, come on, Cliff, let's go get some hamburgers or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we went back a long way from the beginning. Yeah. So yeah. When you were, you know, at that initial gig at the stone and you, you hear what was, uh, probably entirely cover songs at that point and uh, obviously a band trying to find their way what was your reaction to and you mentioned I, you know the magic yeah. of the sound with you know the uh british sensibility and the american sensibility coming together but what was your initial reaction of seeing that first uh they were first show? They, they were awesome they were like we were already they were, they were just amazing already and then i just thought this band was cool i mean they were great they they the sound they made was incredible even back then yeah. And so, yeah. It was and then when Cliff got, yeah, when Cliff got in the band, it was the missing piece. It was like those two shows I shot with Cliff and Dave were, they were the most dangerous band on the planet. I, at that point, I would have put them against like Deep Purple in 73 or Black Sabbath in 74. They were that powerful. And, and when uh, Cliff did his bass solo and Lars jumped on the drums, no one ever did anything like that. That was the next level stuff. The whole place yeah. at the Stone just stopped because no one ever did anything like that. A drum bass solo with that intensity, like fuck. You know, even yeah. you know Steve Harris did that with Nico. They never did that. Right. So. Yeah, it's very rare for such you know guitar-driven music to you know for the bass to take any kind of center stage. And you know, I'm a a, a bass player, so when I was in high school and like really picking up the bass for the first time. I think that's part of the reason why I, you know, gravitated towards Metallica's music as much as I did, because you go back to those, especially in those, you know, first three records, the bass was with Cliff was just such a focal point. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, him with the Rittenbacher come from a long line of lead bass guitar players. You know, Chris Squire, Geddy right. Lee, Lenny. I mean, those that instrument and those three people already set the pace for you know anything else. Yeah. It, it was one of those just amazing. I saw Yes a couple times, and you know, Chris Squire is like six or whatever. You know, yeah. and then I saw Geddy Lee. I saw Rush so many times, and it was just. You know, those guys, it was a point where Getty would play keyboards with his butt or whatever. You know, they all had this stuff on stage. And Lemmy's Lemmy. Lemmy was just like, he brought everything in full circle. He was, you know, the metal. He, didn't, he made metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't care if they say Black Sabbath or whether. It was, you know, Overkill and Bomber, which were yeah. that really made heavy metal and heavy metal. Yeah, there's that certain, yeah. you know, attitude that comes with heavy metal that yeah. I think comes from those bands more so than you know uh, where i think you know the core sound maybe comes from black sabbath but the attitude came after because i think you know sabbath was still coming at it from more of a blues jazz standpoint yeah you know yeah 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 and i i would go budgie more than sabbath but did so no one knows budgie you know and actually <laughs> you put you know, deep purple and rock and deep purple did way more for heavy metal for guitar players, especially in Sweden. The 73 tour, you know, Lars Som, uh, Ingve Som, John Norm from uh, Europe Som, um, uh, what's his name? Jonas Hansen from Silver Mountain, Silver Mountain, right? All yeah. these guitar players, they all, you know, white Stratocaster. Hello, it's Richie Blackmore. Yeah. So for me, Blackmore did more than most other people, but it was Lemmy and Phil and, and Nasty, I mean, uh, uh, Eddie. The black, you know, bullet belts, the whole thing. I mean, I get tingles still. I'll put on Bomber, Overkill, or whatever, and it's still there, you know? Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned the Rickenbacker, because I remember, you know, being in high school and looking up to Cliff, and uh, I, I I always dreamt of, like, getting a Rickenbacker just like he had. And uh, I went into a, a random guitar store, and there it was. And I was like, all right, I, I'm, I cannot afford it, but I'm going to play it. And I just remember thinking how heavy it was and how awkward it was to play. And I was like, how the hell is he banging his head up there with, you know, and flying around and with this heavy ass bass on him? I'm like, my, my respect for him went up even more. But. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, he was one of a kind. Definitely. And so, you know, you have uh, this amazing collection of photographs of Metallica from these early days. Well, how did you start photographing the band? Was it just something like you naturally did? Like I have my camera on me or is it something they approached you to do or how did that come about? Well, cause we, we started a magazine. We started metal round of a magazine right. as, out of the void. And even before it was published, John and I already had an idea what we wanted to do. So Every gig was an assignment, even, you know, so it was an assignment for us. And so we approached it so professionally at the beginning, and it's always been that way. So Metallica was just another gig, and we just happened to click really hard with the band. Uh, everybody, I mean, we were like, you know, John uh, announced him from the second, from the stage from the second show, you know, and he would help in the set list for a while. And, you know, him and Lars went back, you know, they still, you know, kind of in touch all the time. I can't stand the guy, but uh, it was just one of those things. We were just, it was there and we were reporting what we were seeing. We were, you know, journalists kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Which was later on still, it was like having that magazine got you into places where you didn't, we didn't go anyway. You would get, it was this, it was it, even the PR companies, record labels needed us to do the press form. So we were getting stuff, you know, opposite, you know, you know, cause you're, you're the only heavy metal fanzine kind of thing, or then only heavy metal magazine until um, the late 80s when all the corporate people got involved. So we right. got to do all that stuff before anybody else did. Right. I mean, my list, my list of firsts are, are crazy. You know, uh, I'm the my photographs of like Doro Pesh is the her first cover. Blackie Lawless's first cover is mine. The first color photograph of like uh, LA Guns. I mean, it goes on because wow. we just were that way. Yeah. You know, we had the nose to the ground and we, it was our, it was our responsibility to the music to make yeah. sure we got everything we needed to get. Awesome. What, what was like the, do you recall like their transition from, you know, LA to San Francisco when they kind of did that relocation and what that meant for the band and the scene? 
Um, we had a band called Hans Naughty. They were a Van Halen clone. And Ron Quintana eloquently put it, we traded, you know, Van Halen for Metallica kind of thing. <laughs> and I think they always, they, they just fit naturally in the Bay Area. Um, everything about the Bay Area, because uh, bands in L.A., you, you, you're not born there, you move there to be somebody. In San Francisco, you're there to play music because you were born there already. So they got, it was just a natural thing for them. And going back from the 60s, they had the clubs already and the people knew what they're doing. Bill Graham had a club, uh, the Keystone, Pal Keystone Family, that was Marty Ballon's club. So we all had infrastructure ready. So uh, the next wave just came in and took over kind of thing. Yeah. And it was just that, it, it was we're the next generation after the, you know, the 70s and 60s. Right. Yeah. The natural evolution, so to speak. Exactly. Because we're right after punk, right? Because the right. Bad Mad and, yeah. you know, all those punk clubs and stuff. And so we were like, the Stones across the street from the Mab, which had the Ramones and uh, Black Flag and all that stuff. And so it, it, San Francisco was the, the music hotspot. You go back yeah. and think of Grateful Dead and that stuff and Santana and then Journey and then you know, Huey Lewis in the news. It was just nonstop Sammy Hagar, you know, nonstop bands. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's just so hard to imagine anything like that happening today in 2022 with the, the way things have changed so much with uh, the music industry. You know, it's really such a special time. I feel like from like the, you know, through maybe the early nineties with the Seattle scene and stuff where I feel like it was maybe the last kind of, centralized part where it was you know you had just this explosion of bands and music being made in one location with all these great clubs and you know it's sad to see so many of them have closed over the years and whatnot yeah uh, yeah uh, that's what san francisco is right it's a little yeah. cluster of, of land surrounded by water or whatever um and that made it special because you have like scenes everywhere but they're so far out and spread out Right. What makes LA special? Because you have the Sunset Strip, so you have like the Roxy, and then you have the Whiskey, a couple of blacks, and you have the Troubadour. So that's kind of cluster. It's everything else you have to travel so far to. Right. Honolulu is great for me because there's so many world class players here, and I can walk everywhere to these places and see world class guitar players. You know, awesome. for a couple of beers, kind of thing. That's what keeps me here a lot. But yeah, San Francisco was a cluster right there i mean if you yeah. had to go to berkeley go over the bridge and and so but yeah you're right it has to be a place where there's a lot of clubs and the greed factor's not there i mean so because club owners now you know you have the insurance policies and everything else that yeah. goes along with it so it's really tough i mean there are some bands doing stuff sure you know yeah i mean maybe they're not super heavy metal bands they're like hard rock bands doing stuff but it's you know yeah the, the scene will never be that way unfortunately you mentioned your relationship with Dave Mustaine and obviously such a huge part of Metallica history with the early days. Um, everybody knows how it ended. Um, do you remember sort of how uh, that came about and what your reaction was to him exiting the band? Yeah, because for me, Lars was a troublemaker. He got busted <laughs> for like... There was a marquee, it's in the book, and the smash glass, actually Lars smashed it. And that same club the night, the, the, the show before, he got caught ripping off beer and stuff. And it's like Bobby Crone, the owner, said, Yo, just ask me, I'll give you beer. So Lars is more of a troublemaker than Dave was. But, you know, I can tell stories now because it's down the line. But Lars, you know, it was his band. And then Lars and James has always been dichotomy of Metallica. Yeah. And then when, you know, the company wasn't working out, you know, he's a great guy, but he just didn't fit the craziness that Metallica had. And then so when Cliff came in, all of a sudden you have Dave and Cliff are musical geniuses. I mean, they, you know, Dave invented thrash metal guitar. And it was that thing. And then you, I can really see Lars all of a sudden panicking because he's losing control of the band. You know, and so Dave was an easy out kind of thing. You know, because Dave, Dave was like, well, give me a second chance. Let me try to do it again. No, you're gone. And I knew already because Hammett was, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while lately. Hammett was the only logical choice for the band. 
I mean, Gary Hall's a great guitar player, but he didn't have that sensibility. All the other guitar players just didn't have that. I'm part of the band. You know, he wasn't, right. you know. So Hammett, I love the guy. We see each other once in a while, but he fit the mold really mm -hmm. good. Yeah. And then uh, then they were allowed to go on again because with Dave, it had been a lot more dangerous, a lot more potent, and yeah. someone had got killed. So, you know, yeah. fan or somebody someone who got killed so it had to be that way but i went on to photograph megadeth for a couple of years and my second book's right. on megadeth yeah you know you know dave wrote the forward ellison wrote the preference and it was one of those things where they still had that spark and i like that spark i really wanted to be with yeah so you yeah. kind of if i'm understanding this correctly kind of uh migrated to their camp you know in a way in terms of following them with uh, the photographs yeah exactly because lars and i i mean i just didn't like um his arrogance and he's a lot better now he's so much better person but he was a little snot so right. but that's where he was i mean yeah. and people either liked it or didn't like it and i didn't have to do that thing because my celebrityism was bigger than him still yeah. so and there's a lot of bands that i said f you two i mean ozzy Sharon was just horrible, and so I didn't ever shot Randy. But like, I was happy about that because I didn't have to deal with that stuff. Right. Um, Wendy Dio and I, we went around, but I got to do work with Dio. And the other other band that I really didn't work with that I probably should have, I didn't, was Guns N' Roses because they were too yeah. much into certain drugs. And Geffen begged me for a long time, well, just go down and see the show, whatever, you know. And I just couldn't because I, I'm so when they get into involved with a band, you know, and I just couldn't even see myself in that situation. Right. Sure. You know, I mean, I hung out with the band. I saw them once in a while, but I never got to really, you know, get in there and work with them. Right. And probably the two most like talked about things in Metallica history for like people outside the Metallica sphere is probably Dave Mustaine and the GNR tour. You know, it just kind of shows the the t the you know the what's the word i'm looking for toxicity perhaps in the gnr camp and how you know yeah it uh yeah yeah because uh even though i was photographing dave i mean i don't i never did drugs in the 80s it was i mean to be do what i had to do i mean travel distances by film everything was manual on your camera you couldn't be altered you had to be sure. really that way so i didn't do drugs and, and, you know, Dave never did drugs around me. Dave barely drank around me. You know, we had that kind of friendship. I heard other mm -hmm. places, other stories, but it was like around Dave and I, we didn't have that relationship. You know, sure. we talked about metal. We got the photograph. You know, Gar drank a little bit more than anybody else, but it was like getting ready for the show, talk about the music afterwards, you know, what happened kind of thing. It was all music related for us. And that was kind of good, but I heard all the stories. So, right. you know, and there's... <laughs> You know that, but there was that would you know. I guess if if you're into that, then you see that. If you're not into it, it doesn't go around you, kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. And what was your you know in comparison to what he had done with Metallica? What was your reaction to hearing those uh, first Megadeth songs that ended up being that first album? Yeah. So I'm at the record vault somehow, and Lars and James are there, and Greg. The owner of the vault had the first copy of uh, you know Kills My Business, and they're I guess they're writing for uh, writing Lightning, and they put and Greg puts the album on. And, you know the first song is fucking Rattlehead, I think, right? Mm -hmm. And you know James falls on the floor because this is a fucking amazing song. I mean Rattlehead's you know classic, right? Yeah. And then Lars gets the cover and looks at the back. He didn't understand the the indication. You know I I don't know what it said. I don't remember what it said, but like. You know, thanks to Metallica to put in the metal blood through whatever. Mm -hmm. And Lars didn't understand that, but it was classic that I got to be that moment when they heard that record. That's amazing. And it was great. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, there's a couple other stories between them and him, but what turns out to be, it's always been two against one. It's always been Lars sure. and James against Dave. And Dave knows that. He finally came to terms with that. But, you know, just think about it. Anything you do, they do one step better. And it's, right. it's yeah. been pretty. Yeah, but he's made an amazing name for himself, you know. Of course. I mean, Gibson, Gibson, who else? Gibson made a guitar just for him, and nobody else, I don't ever think that they went out of the way to, like, make a King V just for, you know, right. you know, they do copies of guitars, but, like, you know. Right. And I was, you know, that's <laughs> Dave for you. 
Well, you know, I think, you know, going back to your point of it, you said, you know, it needed to happen. And, and, and when you look back at the last 40 years uh, of, I cannot imagine a world where both bands do not exist, you know? And I think yeah. for Mustaine to be in Metallica for such a short period of time, but leave such a big mark in their history and then go on and have the success that he had, even if he, even if it's not the same level, perhaps, I mean, uh, to have that massive success, I think just speaks volumes about, um, you know, you, you called him a musical genius. And I think, you know, when you look at what he's accomplished, it's, it's hard to argue. I mean, yeah. yeah, To put it in perspective, how many other people get kicked out of their band and come back really strong? I mean, Ozzy, right? Because Sabbath kicked out Ozzy and he was probably, I mean, did Ian Gillen do big time when he got kicked out purple? No, he kind of like flat. You can go through uh, Paul Diano, you know, you mm-hmm. go through like Pete Wilson, Def Leppard. How many people get kicked out of the band and then pick themselves up and just go full on to the next project? And, and Ozzy had a, a leg up because, you know, Sabbath had more years behind him, had more fame behind him. You yeah. know, he had more of a name to himself, you know, rather than, um, yeah. you know, I don't think. And, but, I, I don't yeah. think many people knew Mustaine at that time, unless if you had followed them in that, yeah. you know, in that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and then because uh, Ozzy had Sharon, Sharon believed in Ozzy, and Sharon's been the driving force with Ozzy. You know, it's always good to have that management team behind you. I mean, look at Metallica; right. sure, their management's fucking amazing. You know, yeah, and the, the best bands have the greatest. You know, Zeppelin, Peter Graham. So to be a great band is great, one thing, but you have to have that management too to help you to the next level, and that whole team behind you. Because you can be the best band in the world without a good manager. You know, you ain't going to go anywhere. Right. It's all you know. As much as the music is important, it's also about branding, marketing. It, yeah. it is a it is a business, you know. It is the music yeah. business, you know. Yeah. Um, you can go through it and, and rattle off the best bands, and you know they have a great manager, like say you know Peter Graff for Zeppelin, uh, Bill and Coin for Kiss, right? I mean, these bands have that management team behind them to do what they want to do, right? You know, that's like you know so important, right? Absolutely. Do you yeah. have a, a a favorite memory or story you're willing to share from uh, the early days of Metallica, whether it's a live moment or a personal moment or whatever you feel comfortable sharing? Oh, it, it's all it's always fun because we you know we were like brothers kind of thing. One is in the book. There's a group shot with Cliff, and uh, they you know they're flipping me off and shit. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't <laughs> use this. Could you? I said, could you just give me something nice so I can show my mom? And they had that little TV pose. And that was, you know. And um, the other one, it was just, it's me and Cliff in the dressing room before Cliff goes on stage for the first time. And it's a little nervous injury, but I'm thinking, dude, I'm so proud of you. You're doing this. It's amazing. You know, and then here comes Dave going like, this is my buddy. <laughs> you know, and uh, the funny thing is, when Wright came out, their second tour of Europe, Cliff wanted me to go with him. And I said, dude, I can't go. I have all these commitments. He said, dude, just drop everything. Go to Europe with me. And I said, well, I can't. And so we went through two years, I think it was, of him like just being the big brother, hitting me, pushing me. I'm in the pit. I, you know, I get, you know, and so I came to I had to avoid him. And so Megadeth was opening for King Diamond, right? And I see Cliff and go, shit. So I get backstage. I had to photograph Dave and the guys. And I told the security guy, don't let Cliff back here whatsoever. And so we got done. We we're going to talk to King Diamond before he goes on stage. And here comes Cliff. He gives me the biggest bear hug. He's like, dude, it's so good to see you and shit. And going, what the fuck's wrong? Unfortunately, in the way home, I told Stred, dude, Cliff was in a good mood. And he died like two weeks later. Oh, man. Yeah. And then two weeks after that, I saw Lars uh, Lemmy. Uh, Stan was over for Lemmy. And uh, this is just part of the fucking feud from hell and so i'm talking to lars and then james you can see james switched already you can see the dark demons of james starting to take hold because he yeah. just like you know was really he lost his brother too that night and then mm. and so i'm going back and dave was just kind of like so upset too because he lost his but he the last the only time he saw cliff was the time we saw cliff at the king diamond show that's the only time he had talked to him and stuff right. and he's gone and here's the beginning of the feud. He Dave told the security guard not to let James and Lars backstage. 
happens. I was before them and I heard this and I was like, fuck, it's on, you know, and yeah. they went through that whole feud for a while. You know, that was right. pretty intense. It was like, I mean, you saw the movie that some kind of monster yep. where, uh, you know, Dave brought up all that stuff. And it was like, <sighs> I mean, that, I mean, when Cliff passed, everything changed. I mean, a couple of my friends, I know we all, the San Francisco scene didn't have that same innocence anymore. I've noticed when I was compiling my first book, I was doing LA a lot more. I mean, I'd go to San Francisco when I had to, but didn't have that like you know innocence to it anymore. So when Cliff yeah. left, it was like a lot of things, you know, changed everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Everybody just trying to process in their yeah. own way, yeah. and good or bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that was, and then I was there when uh, Jason got in the band. We knew Jason from Flotsam. Right. He would write his letters and we put him in and stuff. And um, I remember the, the day that he got to the band and stuff. That was kind of cool. And I didn't realize that they were going to torture the poor guy forever. <laughs> but, but it was like he was a logical choice again. Camille Les Claypool, Scott Earl from Culprit, uh, Joey Barrett. You know, all these guys are showing up. And and I think Jason was the perfect fit. Yeah, And he was really... You know, and he what he do? I mean, he did how many albums and how many world tours and all that shit stuck up with him? And yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And what, what, what Rob brings, Rob brought a physical aspect back to the band, a very physical aspect. And you see the early shows, and James had to get back into be that physical aspect right. too. Yeah. And so I mean, Metallica had has this lucky thing to it. It always has the right people, at the right time to get into that next level. And and it just, I mean, and. They're the most open band ever. I mean, nobody, there's nothing not known about the band. I mean, right. they, even before the internet, they're so transparent. And I think that makes them that much bigger. Yeah. You know, that much better. I mean, what, they're in South America now doing huge numbers and shit. So yeah. it's like, and they pick and choose and it's like, you know, it's like, why do you like Metallica? Why are you still a Metallica fan? Um. You know, I think that honesty you mentioned is a big part of it. I don't feel like they have really ever truly compromised. Um, it, like, I, I feel like, you know, uh, they go through these changes and these evolutions or what have you, or you know, changes in musical sound or looks throughout their career, or whatever. Um, but I, I I feel like it all came from a, a pretty honest spot, um, and at the core, the band never really changed. Like they still always had that like signature Metallica crunch with the big drums and the and the that Heffield yeah bark you know and uh, and and when you see them live, you know they they look like they're having fun. Um, you know, I saw them on the most recent World Wire tour when they came through my area, and I, I dragged my wife to it, and uh, she, uh, but she was like, you know, for some reason, like they, 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 you know, play Inter Sandman, of course, and she's like, how many times have they, like, I can only imagine the amount of times they've played that song. It's their biggest like mainstream song, but they still yeah. look like they're having fun playing it. So either they are or they're very good actors, <laughs> you know, very good, just that good at performing where they can pass off as like, this is the greatest, you know, time we've ever played this song. So I, I think, but I think there is, you know, that um, uh, they they come across as genuine. Um, and, yeah, I, yeah, and, and yeah. I think, you know, you were talking about how, you know, Lars has changed. And even as somebody who doesn't know them personally, I feel like, you know, because there's kind of that transparency when you look at, you know, when you read interviews or see interviews, like you can see how they've changed and grown through the years. And, uh, you know, now that I'm not, uh, uh, you know, a teenager and I got a family and kids and all that, it's, you know, I don't, I don't mind James's dad jokes on stage and, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and I appreciate them being able to look back and look inwards and be like yeah that was you know 
not cool of me and I had an ego then and this and that and they, they've just become a little bit more reflective I think and uh, and and kind of embrace who they are a little bit more yeah I think it's important for bands that have lasted that long because bands don't last that long I mean how long yeah. is Leo you know, like you take like Zeppelin like 10 years or whatever right the only bands that lasted are like the Stones and U2 I mean, yeah. from that kind of thing. I mean, Aerosmith is like a parody kind of thing now. Or there's no rap, there's no molecules, no Nirvana, no Pearl Jam, blah, 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 blah. It's the metal bands, right? The Death Angels, the Testaments, mm-hmm. the Exoduses, you know, and Metallicas and Megas. Those bands really haven't stopped, you know? And yeah. so that's, they're because they're all fans first. They're, they're, they didn't get into band like, look at me, you can be this. They're, they've always been that way and stuff. But the crazy thing about James and Lars is you they were up there with like uh, McCartney, Lennon McCartney, or Jagger Richards and songwriting teams. You know, yeah. the the Black album is like up there with Dark Side of the Moon, Back in Black. You know, right. pink, you know all that stuff. It's amazing what they've accomplished, and they're still fans. Lars is still a fan. You know, yeah. James for a long time. You know, Baroness, right? Yeah, that was like and, and Ghost. You know, James is big champion of Ghost and stuff. You know, and so it's important for that to go on. You know, those, you know, Lars is a fan still. It's amazing. You know, you can't lose that, that little thing that made you where you are. Sure. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think, you know, like you were saying, when that happens, you're done for. And I think people, um, you know, people are pretty good at seeing through bullshit, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, you can maybe fool people once or twice, but not for 40 years, you know? Yeah. And, and there, I think, you know, to your point too, talking about the elemental bands, I think that's just something that comes with, uh, you know, the genre, like you said, they're all fans and there's just this, um, metal bands in general seem to have a pretty intimate connection with their fans. Um, and I don't know if it has to do with, you know, the mentality of like, we're all, kind of outsiders united in this cause, you know? Uh, yeah. But there is, uh, I would say for the most part, there there is that intimacy between a lot of the, uh, a lot of metal bands in their fan base. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's right. I think that's the main thing. They'll, they'll do anything for the fans and they know it wasn't for the fans, they wouldn't be anywhere. Because what, how much MTV did they get or how much radio play did they get? You know, right. they got there from, the fanzines from playing live, you know, the tape trading in the early days. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it all stems from, you know, that DIY attitude of, you know, nobody gave them yeah. the light of day until they were like, Oh, you know, we can probably make some money off this, you know? And, yeah. and, yeah. uh, and, and fortunately, you know, they, it, it, that was, you know, it's kept them going for this long. Um, yeah. It's truly amazing. Were you able to be, um, uh, attend or be part of any of those big four shows because that must have been such a a moment for uh, especially and Metallica was, and Mustaine. Yeah, I was still I got yelled at from a lot of people because I was still kind of like, <laughs> okay, whatever, you know. And but a lot of a lot of big important people yelled at me like, dude, you should be here. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> um, I had four little kids at the time, so yeah. picking up and flying to San Francisco, but it was. Uh, I'm proud of my legacy with the band from the early days. I did my time with the band. Sure. I mean, I'm happy with it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a message from my friends like, hey, Lars said, hey, or something like that. Or I'll see Hammett once in a while here in Honolulu. But, you know, my time with the band was done. I'm happy for what we did. I don't have to cling on to that past. I mean, I'm happy now to uh, fill in some blanks for the fans. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to send photographs to, I mean, last six months last year, my photographs were everywhere from the master class to on stage at the fourth anniversary right, to yeah. like the band to the, all these, but I'm happy to do that to keep that part of the band alive. But for me to go out there and like, Hey Lars, what's up, man? You know, yeah. um, I'm tempted once in a while, but you know, maybe if they turn 50 and we're still alive or something. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. But you know, uh, you know, um, every, I got so much flack for those shows not showing up. Yeah. So, yeah everybody <laughs> yeah but it was yeah like i said i did my time with the band and i'm really proud of it yeah right you know um it was yeah i mean looking back it was a golden time for the whole music scene for like the early glam bands to some of those speed metal bands the hyraxes and stuff like that it was a whole big scene and 
And John and my part was to cover the scene faithfully and not to embellish the truth. But this is what it is. Here it is. You know, sure. I got, you know, we got super lucky. I got to, you know, meet most of my fans. And like one day, hey, that's Alice Cooper. And then find out my <laughs> photograph him was on my photograph was on his office wall for a while. But it was just, I mean, it was fine. I mean, yeah. nowadays I'm working with a lot of talent in Honolulu, and there's some guys just breaking. You know, they're not metal bands, or they're not even hard rock bands. But there's amazing, talented people. But they have that heart. They have, they know where they're coming from, and that makes these people talented. And so, yeah, I was going to ask you about, um, you know, you had mentioned before being in Honolulu, and I was reading um, prior to this interview about how. You seem to be pretty involved in the local music scene there, at least with um, certain artists. So I, I was interested to see what drew you to that scene and uh, are, what are some artists that we should be on the lookout for? Well, right you know, there's four major ones that were, they're all the same age. They're like 40, 41. And I got to them kind of early. But right now, there's a guy named Ron Artis, too. He's a, this crazy, I mean, he's, very traditional. He's not. He's blues, okay. Yeah. But he's not the Buddy Guy blues. But before the pandemic, he's on stage with Buddy Guy, or he's jamming with Jimmy Vaughn. He's starting to make a name for himself. But now pandemic, but he's bringing Eric Gales everywhere he's going right now. And Eric Gales is like this, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's like really amazing. And there's a guy named Mike Love, who is doing big numbers. He's more. He's a, like roots rock guy, but it's a rock roots. And this really authentic. And then there's my buddy Tavana, who just, um, he's a, a one man band, but it's not the typical. He has six <laughs> drum, rolling, uh, rolling drum triggers. So he's doing uh, drums, I mean, yeah. drums, drum fills out there. And he plays like, you know, all these custom guitars, but his voice fills out the whole midsection. Wow. And he's doing really good, but he needs to get off the island. And, you know, there's, my other buddy, uh, Nick Gertzen, Nick's from Sweden. Nick spent time with uh, Nico McBrain and Nico McBrain's Brain Damage. Mm-hmm. He was in a band called Voices of Extreme, this heavy metal band from hell in, uh, in uh, New York. And he's here, and he teaches guitar, plays a lot. And he's like Gary Moore slash John Sykes kind of thing. And wow. he just put out his first album, put out a live AP. But it's good because they're here. And I can walk to the club or whatever. <laughs> I don't have to like drive because you know we, John and I were from Monterey. Yeah, and to go to any kind of San Francisco, hundred hundred miles one way, right? And LA's three hundred something the other way. Right. And so it's good to you know walk out my front door, go half a mile there, and see a bunch of my buddies. <laughs> and you know that makes it worth it here. And they're all they're all very uh, humble, and they know that they're appreciative. Plus. When they start out, you play five nights a week. I mean, you play in oh, hotel yeah. bars or small yeah. clubs, and you get to be really good. I mean, you get to be amazingly good. You yeah. play all the time. It's not like back in the day, well, we'll play once a month. Right. You know, <laughs> that, that whole thing about stage time is so true. Yeah. You know, I mean, like an hour on stage equals like 10 hours of practice or whatever. Yeah. So it's fun. I mean, it's really, pandemic is, you know, kind of took the toll out of people. Sure. And uh, I was happy to take two months off doing nothing. <laughs> and so now, now it's time to get back to work and stuff. And yeah. so I've had photo sessions lined up and I'm probably going to go to Portland. My buddy, Larry Lars, Larry's in a band called uh, Ballast Massacre and they're fucking heavy from hell. I mean, they're a three piece, just, I mean, like Slayer has nothing on them. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and they're really good. They're going to play some festivals, and we've been talking about them flying me out and awesome. do some like that. Yeah, but, you know, I'm enjoying being here. I mean, I like the weather here and stuff, and <laughs> the people are pretty nice. And, yeah. Yeah. And then, awesome. you know, I, yeah, I spent all my 20s and 30s traveling. When I got here, it's like, I'm home. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm definitely envious of the weather you have being in uh, the northeast here but uh <laughs> it's, it's finally getting nice here though at least you know we we're, yeah. we're we're starting to see you know 60 degrees you know so that's free <laughs> <laughs> i was waiting for that reaction you know yeah 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 it, that's the, the thing plus the people are nice i mean you can't yeah. be upset when it's nice and sunny all the time <laughs> 
all right well yeah. that's why the people in the northeast are so angry all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah um where is well the... I, have a, I have a question really quickly where you have a, yeah what brought what made you do podcast and why are you podcasting for metallica so uh metallica is my all-time favorite band um you know i uh, and I'm not old enough to be, you know, there on the on day one, but uh, from my earliest childhood memories, um, it, it, they were kind of in the background. And then I remember seeing uh, the I have two older brothers who would, you know, watch MTV around me, even though they weren't supposed to. And I remember seeing, you know, the Inter Sandman music video. And I, I know that my next door neighbor stole his sister's copy of the Black Album cassette, which just shows you how popular, you know, what you mentioned before, how big that album was, you know, my next door neighbor's sister who wasn't a metalhead, you know, but had that album. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, recording it off there, recording the Black Album on a blank tape from her cassette. And the last songs on both sides were cut off and, uh, you know, but from, from that point forward, I was a fan, I, even though I spent, you know, my early years thinking that was their only album. Uh, but when I got to middle school, uh, uh, probably like sixth grade, I, you know, went to my local record store and I was like, let me look at the Metallica section. I was like, oh, they got all these other albums. Um, and that's when my e- education kind of started. So I remember going home that day with Kill 'Em All because mm. I was looking at the album covers. I'm like, which one might piss my mom off the most? Probably the one with the blood and the hammer that's talking about killing. I'll, I'll bring that one home and see how that goes. Um, but, you know, she, she, my older brother who was with me when I bought it, you know, he got in trouble for letting me buy it. But I, I got to keep the album and play it. So I don't, it, it was a win for me. Uh, but, you know, for, then from that point forward, just kind of uh, hearing the rest of the albums, kind of, you know, reading. Uh, books and interviews and watching documentaries or whatever I could get my hands on. And then, you know, from there, uh, because I was listening to a lot of like, um, started getting into a lot of like classic rock stuff, but then I got into, you know, Sabbath and then Megadeth was the next real like metal band I got into because it was, seems like the natural progression with the Dave connection, you know? Um, and then, and, and I just loved both those bands so much. And then, you know, the rest is history. By the, by the time I graduated high school, you know, I got into death metal and black metal and stuff. But my heart was always kind of with those uh, Metallica and those thrash bands. And uh, even when I venture outside of metal and listen to other styles of music now, you know, like it always comes back to Metallica in some way. And I, 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 I always half jokingly, I started the podcast because, um, my wife got tired of me turning every conversation into uh, a Metallica conversation, you know? So now I, I'm like, what's another way I can just get this all on my system and talk to other people who, um, you know, can either share some stories about the band or it, even if it's just another fan, we can just, you know, talk for an hour or so and they can get it out of their system as well. So it's just been a great way to kind of uh, connect to other fans and, meet people like yourself who are willing to share their stories and uh and, and being like kind of a small part of the big metallica community yeah i think that's uh, that's what you hit right there it's it's a big family yeah you know and i think that's so important and how many other bands do that i mean how many, how many ever bands have that close-knit i don't hear this Molly crew podcast <laughs> not sorry Mickey, <laughs> but, uh, you know metallica is the band yeah. and they have all these people. I've been lucky to guest on a lot of people's shows. And it's good because it, you guys are the, you know, um, the fanzines of the, 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 you know, this deck, this era. And, you know, yeah. and, um, and that it's all about sharing ideas, community, and your love for this band called Metallica. And, so. you know, I had no clue the other podcast existed till I had the idea for this one. And I was like, oh, it's not an original idea, but uh, not that, it, you know, there's a podcast about everything now, you know, but yeah. at, at the time I thought of this, you know, I guess it was like almost five years ago now, I, you know, they just were not on my radar. Then they got on my radar when I kind of started putting, you know, the word Metallicast out there. And I, and, you know, just to add, I only mentioned this because it adds to, you know, what you're saying about family, like, 
you're kind of like it i was like i don't know how you know these other podcasts will react or if they'll even acknowledge you know my show yeah. they were all like hey welcome like you know it's just all we're just all fans it's just yeah. so it doesn't you know there's no competition it's just hey yeah we're fans because i know you no know, Badian started his podcast his uh skull sessions or whatever it was a long time ago and he was the first one and yeah. then everybody else started coming in. Everybody else embraced everybody else because it, it, you, it, you can't slag anybody off of this thing. You know, you yeah. have, I mean, I mean you're, you're taking your time, your time, your equipment investment, and time with your family, you know, has to be positive. You need to be, and that's what's really cool about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, just a great outlet and great way to meet like-minded people. Yeah, exactly. Bill, thank you so much for coming on. This was a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm so happy. Uh, again, thank you for being so flexible. Uh, you know, I for the, everybody else listening, I I had to reschedule because of that family stuff that you mentioned. But so, thank you so much for being understanding and being so flexible. Where's the best place um, everybody can find you online or uh, or purchase the great Metallica Megadeth books that are out there as well? Yeah, these is uh, Bill Hale. Google search Bill Hale and Metallica. My website comes up. The books come up. Amazon's always the best place to buy anything, and so that's really cool. Uh, there's hundreds of things about me. You know, Bill Hale, Metallica, uh, other interviews, radio things, photographs. But uh, um, that's the best place to start because the website's photosbybillhale.com. But uh, just Bill Hale and Metallica, and everything comes up. Awesome. And you can, I'll put some links in the episode description as well for those of you who just want to easy click. Um, please follow Metallicast on social media at Metallicast Bot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd be so kind, leave a positive five star review on Apple Podcasts. All that goes a long way in helping the podcast continue to grow. As I always jokingly say on my quest for world domination. Um, and. I want to give a shout out to uh, Bison, my favorite one man band who does our intro music um for metallica so thank you to him you can check out the links in the episode description and support him and his music as well until next time ladies and gentlemen met up your ass yeah that's not experts